Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. And welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So in this podcast, I am back interviewing Shilpa Shah. Shilpa's actually been on the podcast before. She was one of my first guests, episode 39, she came on and we've kept in touch ever since. And we've also had the opportunity to work together. And the reason why I wanted to get Shilpa back on is that I just think she's a phenomenal leader. I think that she is able to communicate the vision and what needs to be done like flawlessly. And in this episode, we talk about influencing skills. We talk about understanding your leadership style and the importance of being yourself. We talk about pharmacy and some of the business of pharmacy talked about contracts and we talked about kind of shared contracts between general practice and community pharmacy. She also touched upon kind of her nature as a completer finisher and when she's working collaboratively asking the question what value do I bring to this group and because she respects the time and effort of the people that she's working with that motivates her to do what she says she's going to do in a world where Sometimes we have to work collaboratively, but there isn't the authority or mandate or sometimes the accountability to make sure work actually gets done. So it's a fab interview. I really, really think you're going to get so much value from this. And for those of you that are a regular listener, you will likely skip over the intro. But in the intro, I say this podcast is for health and care professionals looking to understand the hard and soft skills to lead in a more integrated way. And I think Shilpa demonstrates that perfectly on this podcast. Hey, Shilpa, thank you so much for joining me back on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm really good, thank you. And thanks so much for inviting me. I'm so excited to be back. Absolutely. So I wanted to speak to you because I was fortunate, we were fortunate enough to work together on a project. It was called the Integrated Medicines Optimization Board. So I want to talk a little bit about that, around what does, what does collaborative working look like across systems in real life? How does that look and feel like? You've also, I think it's, you're not new in post now. How long have you been in your post? Just every year. Okay, so you're not new. But I want to understand your thought process around when it was, when you made the decision to leave and what was like your first three months, what was your induction period like and how you've just settled into that role. And then we can chat all things pharmacy. So can you just remind our listeners who you are and what you do? 
So I'm Shilpa and I am a pharmacist. I predominantly have spent my whole career in community pharmacy. And at the moment, I am the CEO of Northeast London Local Pharmaceutical Committee. What was the role previous to this role? So I was the CEO of the Kent Local Pharmaceutical Committee. And previous to that, I worked for two large multiples. So I did my training with a large multiple pharmacy group and worked my way up in different store manager levels as a pharmacist store manager. And then I became an area manager for another large multiple and then went into the LPC world. What is, and hopefully there'll be more than one, but what is the thing you are most proud of from when you worked at Kent LPC? There's loads of stuff that I think I'm really, really proud of. But the main one was when we won an award for the best supporting LPC with Independent Pharmacy Magazine. It's the ultimate thank you and well done for the great job that you're doing because you hear it from various people. But actually to win an award was was absolutely amazing. And what made you decide to leave? So there was um, a couple of things. I think I absolutely loved the job, which is really funny because when I left the large multiple that I was working for and decided to go for the job, I had big imposter syndrome. I felt like I knew nothing about the LPC role. I thought I won't be able to do this. I'm not going to know anything because it's really different. You're doing something different every day. It's quite political sometimes and I didn't think that that interested me, but I just wanted to do something different and make a difference. So I absolutely loved the job. But I live in northeast London. Now, that wasn't a problem in that, you know, due to COVID, a lot of meetings had gone online. So it wasn't about the traveling. But I've always been really proud of the fact that I went to school. I went to sixth form. I learned how to swim in Walden Forest. I'm a volunteer at Samaritans in Walden Forest. Everything I do has always been very local. And even when I worked for all these businesses, I was kind of always looking after this area. Whilst I ventured out a little bit, a bit further to do different things, I always came back to my home. So for me, when the opportunity came up that North East London LPC had a vacancy, I just felt that I wanted to do the great job that I know I can do and that I do do. I wanted to do it and give back to the local community. So the patients that use the services are people that, that live locally. I wanted to give back to that community because that's the community. You know, they say it takes a village to raise a child. Well, I really do believe that, you know, it takes community to raise a child. And that's the community in the area that raised me. So I wanted to give back. Also, the person that did the job previous to me, they'd been in post for over 20 years. And I just thought if I didn't go for it, then I could be waiting another 20 years before (laughs) the community came up. And I just thought I've got to go for it. So it just it came a bit out of the blue. I think there was other factors as well. I felt like in Kent that, you know, because there'd been so many changes that I'd made in my role, in all honesty, I think that, you know, that sometimes some of the committee members, you know, you work for a committee, it sometimes did put them a little bit on on edge around, oh, this is a bit different. This is a bit new. And I felt like it was quite difficult to sometimes pass things through the board, I suppose I would say. Whereas I think London's always been a bit forward thinking and moving as well. So okay. There was sort of two, two reasons for that decision, I guess. So when you told that particular board, or not like the LPC board, the Integrated Medicines Optimization Board, you were leaving, oh, I wish I could have filmed it. Everybody just stopped. Everyone's mouth was open. Everyone's like, what? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And what was really nice about that, I think we'd had a conversation. We'd had the meeting, like the first kind of meeting coming together. You were like, oh, was I okay? I wasn't quite sure. And then to see the reaction when you said that you were moving on, everybody was like, oh my God don't go. (laughs) 
so it was really really nice sometimes you, you know like you don't ever truly know how people feel about you until you leave it's such a shame <laughs> yeah it's so true and that was such a lovely feeling because whilst I knew that they respected me and loved working with me I didn't know how much that you know they thought they were going to miss me and it was really lovely and I've actually just you know via social media mainly kept in touch with them but it's lovely you know when you bump into people at conference and they're like oh my god we yeah. miss you so much and I'm like oh that's so lovely I want to talk about that particular board because we talk about integrated care and I think I've got experience trying to integrate multiple general practices to work together and then I had the opportunity to work with Kent and Medway and it's really difficult. How many organisations came together? So we had all the hospital trusts and the acute trust as well. So we had those. And then we had obviously the medicines optimization team from what yeah. was the CCG. And we had me from the local pharmaceutical committee as well. So we sort of had quite a number of organizations. Yeah, it was around about 11 or 12. Yeah. yeah. But everybody came together. Yeah. Everybody had the will. So what we did was kind of, you know, like try to work out the vision. Why is it important for us to work together? What do we want to do? What do we think our strengths are? And that was a really good exercise. But it was like two steps forward. And then it was like one step back. It would be like you'd hit a friction point. And the question that kept coming up, you know, like who is accountable? Yeah. Who holds us accountable? Who holds you accountable, Shilpa, when you say you're going to do something? Yeah. And you don't. And this is just universal, it's not unique to your group. What was your experience of working on that board? I think similar to what you said, I think that we came together really well. And I think the good thing is that COVID had brought us a lot closer together because we had to cut out a lot of red tape during COVID and we had to make things happen really quickly with pace. And, you know, for someone I might not have known before, we were suddenly having a meeting three times a week with them and you were kind of getting to know them and because people weren't going out socially you know you'd start seeing kids in the background you'd see pets in the background you'd get to see the inside of people's houses so you almost were thrown together that you had to get a lot closer than you normally would with work colleagues and I think with the NHS that is exactly what the NHS is, is it's a number of different bodies with different vested interests with different areas of expertise and the great thing that makes the NHS work and keep going is the collaboration and the working together but to do that you have to have trust and respect and it's just like any relationship don't you they're the things that you have to have so I think we had the trust and we had the respect and we had that because we saw what each other stepped up to do during COVID and we saw everybody putting in extra hours we saw everybody supporting each other you know we were we were sending emails to each other at 11 12 o'clock at night work related but we, we were literally sending emails but then there was that care aspect of like you know please put down your emails now and you know we'll pick yeah. up in the morning please go to bed so I think that really helped us when we came together I think then coming together face to face having somebody like you there facilitating that was in a in a role that was I guess observing and not part of it but mm. but away from it and giving us feedback really made us look into ourselves and think am I adding value to this group? And, and you really wanted to keep that respect and that trust. So if you said you were going to do something, it was really important that you went away to do it and you wouldn't want to let that group down. So although we had lots of discussions about who would do it, I think what was really good is at the end when we actually came up on a name and we put it to paper because I think that was really good. Good old fashioned flip paper. Yeah. <laughs> Putting it down there was really good because you visibly see it and you go, right, I've committed to that. I need to do that. And I think also what, what is really good about collaborative relationships is when you've got the trust and respect, you can challenge each other in a respectful manner. It's not taken personally 
and you can kind of reflect on your behaviors within a meeting you can look at other people's behaviors and you can kind of go yeah that's actually that's spot on that that you know that was my my bad I should have done that I should have done that differently I should have done that in a different way or yeah no I I absolutely agree with you that's the way that we should go forward so I think there's so many components to getting everyone in a room together having a facilitator is amazing I think if you try and have a facilitator within the group that's always tricky because we all have our own agenda don't we and there's always going to be that bias where you try and get your agenda across just because you need to for you for your role or you want something to work quicker so having you there and actually not looking at specific tasks and agendas. It was about any time. Yeah. I remember I was brought in because you were kind of described as very operational. So you had that action, you know, like you would all just go off and do everything. But it was like the why. It was like the strategy. How are we do? How do we link in with each other versus just everybody head down and just Absolutely. doing their bit? Yeah. And so there was, you need trust, you need respect to have action. You had action. Everybody yeah. had action. But I think it speaks a lot to your personality that the fact that you said, I wanted to make sure I was adding value to the group. I think that is so important that anything you do, if you're going to do it, do it properly. Otherwise, just sort of step away and just say, this isn't right for me. And I think that's so important because it's not about we get paid to do a job, but like in healthcare, yeah, you get paid to do a job. But it goes back to, you said it there, the why. Why do we do everything we do? To improve the healthcare yeah. of the, the population, right? That is what we, we set out to do. And that's what we really want to do, to really look after our local communities or the areas we work in and the people, the residents of those areas. And so to do that, you're not just one person having an action that's going to affect a small group. You're one person that's having an action that will affect a million people living in that particular yeah. area. And one of the things that I really, and when I say it now, it makes me sound like really good. It come from you guys. What was really lovely about working with you guys is that when we got to, we were talking about health inequalities and it was like, this is not a project. You don't have like a health inequalities team or project. It runs across absolutely everything that we do. Yeah. And I just, I'd never heard it, even though it's kind of like so obvious, I'd never heard anybody. And you guys were so passionate about, it was about the patients. It was about the patients. And it, it was just really, really refreshing because sometimes people focus on the money or they yeah. focus on their business, their organization and what it means for them. But I think as a group, you were all about the patients. Yeah. So how do you, in your role now, how do you hold people accountable? Because not everybody thinks, you know, I want to do it amazing or I'm not going to bother. <laughs> you know, like not yeah. everybody thinks like that. So how do you hold people accountable for when they don't have to answer to you? It is really difficult because in my particular role, like, I'm literally influencing lots of different stakeholders, but I am not accountable. Like even with community pharmacy, you know, we've got various different services that we offer across Northeast London. Now I can't go into pharmacy like I did when I was an area manager and say, look, it's really important. You need to do this. It's part of your job. It's, you know, we measure you on performance. That's what you need to do. I have to influence. And I guess the way that I've always learned this, and it was from one of the big organizations that I worked with, we did a lot of work on the Simon Sinek in Golden Circle of Influence, which is all about the why. Why do you do what you do? And I think that having that conversation with pharmacists or having that conversation with the integrated care team or the medicines optimization team, if somebody said they're going to do something, just say, well, look, we, you know, we said we would do this 
so that we could have more pharmacies help more patients. And as a result of that, not having that information, it's going to be delayed by a month. So it's just always putting the patient at the heart of what you do. And I feel like every conversation I have that we, when we talk about that and we talk about why we're doing what we're doing and it is about the patient, you know, some of the services we do, about GP, CPCS, hypertension referrals from GPs, also about releasing workload within GP practices so that appointments can be given to those patients that really need them. So although we might talk about it in the way of, well, we're releasing capacity in GP surgeries, we know that that's because that capacity will be given to the patients that really need it. So again, it always goes back to the heart of the patient. I think if we always talk in that language, I think it's really hard to, to not do what you said you were going to do. I think what is difficult is someone, if someone hasn't done what they said they were going to do in my role, like I said, I can't have a go at them or say, you know, that's, but I can say that's disappointing. Or I can say, you know, it's really important that we get this done by the next meeting because we've committed to it. So sometimes it's the words we use and the way we say it, which kind of hopefully that person will go back and reflect on and and make it priority to get done. Do you ever feel a tension between community pharmacy and general practice? Do you feel like do you butt heads sometimes or do you feel like you're on the same side? I would love to say, no, no, there's no tension, but let's be realistic. You work a lot with PCNs and, and I work a lot with community pharmacy and GPs. Yes. So there is tension, but it's about, again, it's about real building relationship and it's about explaining why we're doing something that we're doing. So a typical example I'm going to give you is years ago, community pharmacy were allowed to do the flu vaccine and it landed so badly with GP practices because it was, it is, look, at the end of the day, it's their patients and it's their income. And suddenly they've got like a, a competitor group doing the vaccinations. So it, it kind of was, oh, you know, if you go to the pharmacy, then we lose that patient. And so it, it was, it's always been a tension. And I've seen over the years, the tension massively decrease on that particular, you know, service. However, why did community pharmacy get given the go ahead to do vaccinations? It was never to take the patients from the GP surgeries, the one that goes to the GP surgery, they go there anyway, they have their vaccination. It was for us to vaccinate those people who are busy working, hardly ever visit their GP, haven't got time, but can pop in on a Saturday morning while they're doing their shopping or out, you know, in in Blue Water Shopping Centre, whatever, pop into the, the pharmacy and just get vaccination done. So it was about us working together to vaccinate more of the population, not two groups suddenly having to vaccinate the same number of population that they did before. And I think when you have those conversations and explain that, the penny drops and it's like, oh, okay, we can't really have a go at community pharmacy because actually they're not trying to take our business away from us. They're trying to help keep people well so that they're not having to use our services and so that we can use those services for the people that need them. Now that constantly keeps happening with any new services that come out, right? So COVID vaccinations is another example. But I think in London, in particular, community pharmacy have delivered massively on COVID vaccination, which has then given the GPs the opportunity to work on other things. So we know that there's patients that suffer from long COVID that need to see the GP a bit more than they would have before. So they can focus on those sorts of things whilst community pharmacy do the vaccinations. And and don't get me wrong, GPs have done vaccinations as well. So I think it's about... Positioning any new service when you're working with GP colleagues to explain why we're doing what we're doing and and which cohort of patients we're aiming to look after. And once they realize, ah, okay, it's not a competitive threat, you're not trying to take our business away from us, and we're working together, that works really well. But that's the other thing. I think we just said about GPs. GPs, there are so many staff that work in a GP surgery. Yeah. It's all of the staff that we need to be working yeah. with, isn't it? Not just the GPs. Yeah, I mean general practice. 
So I think when we look at like our service, like GPC, PCS, actually it's the practice manager and the receptionist that we need to work with for that so that they understand that their role is to kind of vaguely triage patients, not always triage them, but send them to the pharmacy via their referral system so that they know that by doing that, they've freed up some more appointments for other patients to see the GP. It's for us to work closely with the pharmacists who are prescribing the medication in a surgery to kind of work really well with patients. So it's about those local relationships. So you've got the, you've got me doing it at a higher level, but also locally on the ground, you've got to have those relationships. And when the relationships are good, they're brilliant. When they're not so good is where the tension comes in. And that's where we need to nip that in the bud. Can you just explain, so even though this is very primary care pharmacy centric, I do think there is value in talking about this because we're all patients and we will may encounter going to our GP and the receptionist saying, do you know what, maybe you should go to the pharmacist. It's like, why are they saying that? So could you explain what that service is? Yeah, what we would want is if a patient phones up the surgery or goes in and and speaks to the receptionist and they have hurt their ankle or they've got a cold or they've, you know, got an upset stomach, then realistically, you know, unless they've got other underlying conditions or, or more serious illnesses, they probably don't need to see the GP. So that's where we would say that we would expect the receptionist to say, oh, you know, we can send you to one of the local pharmacists. Which one would you like to go to? It's really important. It's patient choice. That is really important. Some surgeries have an IT system where they can refer directly in. Some will have to use NHS mail when they'll refer them across. Then what happens is the pharmacy will phone the patient or the patient will pop into the pharmacy, whatever they've set up in their local area. And then they will be treated by the pharmacist. And and it could be that in the majority of cases, you just need advice. So if, you know, someone's hurt their ankle, it's pretty much arrest your ankle and maybe take some, you might want to take ibuprofen or or paracetamol for the pain. So six out of 10 referrals are generally A-OK, just a bit of advice. One in 10 nationally would lead to going back to the GP. And that might be that, you know, sometimes patients really play it down. Some of their patients out there are quite tough and that, you know, they play it down. They'll have like, oh, I've just been bitten by an insect. And then so they get sent to the pharmacy and then they come in and their legs like swollen and it's like yellow pus coming out of it. So yeah, that's that's not just a normal insect, but we need to send you back to the GP to get antibiotics potentially. And then you've got a few that may need to buy over-the-counter medication. So minor illnesses are generally self-limiting, but they may want to buy something to help with their symptoms to get rid of it a bit quicker. I suppose also what the service is doing is it's educating patients on, oh, I can actually go to the community pharmacy. I don't need to go to the GP. So we're hoping that once that happens a couple of times and they're like, oh, last time I went to the GP, they sent me to the pharmacy. They did that again. Now I'm going to just go to the pharmacy myself so that we can help treat them. And that will really, what that will do is we call ourselves the front door to the NHS. So they'll come to the pharmacy first and then we'll treat them and do what we need to do. Then the people that can see the GP see the GP, which then stops people having to go to urgent care centres and accident and emergency. So the overall effect on the NHS could be phenomenal if every area implemented GPC, PCS, I guess, in a way where it offloaded so many patients. I'm smiling. Because I was going to ask you, for the naysayers that go, this is a waste of time, all of the patients end up getting sent back, NHS mail is a really inefficient way, sending emails, it's really inefficient, it's not worth my time. What would you say to the naysayers? I would say to them that you've got to keep going and find 
the way that works for you. So initially in our ICB, we were using NHS mail and it's slightly clunky, it is, but people were getting used to it. But then our ICB went, we know how useful this service will be. So they actually did pay for an integrated IT system, which which works with the system that most of our GPs use in this area. So they paid for an integrated IT system, which is the press of a button. So in our area, I'm not going to lie, it's much easier to do than it may be in some areas. But what I would say is that if we always keep pushing back and saying no, then things are never going to change. Things are never going to improve. And I think often what we do, oh, we tried that in the past. It didn't work. And then we're not willing to try a different way. We're not willing to change our minds because sometimes we think it takes so much more work to do. And in the you know initial phases, it may, it may be a month of hard work, but actually the rewards might come in month two, three, four, and five. And then you will see more and more patients going to the pharmacy first, or you will see, actually, it used to take me five minutes to upload all this information on NHS mail. Now I like, you know, can do it in like 30 seconds because I can do it so quickly. So it's, I would just say, keep persevering with it. I would also say it's like a customer complaint. If you have a bad service at a restaurant or in a shop, you tell everyone about it. You're like, I went to this shop and and you tell about 20 people. If you have a good experience, you probably don't mention it to anyone. You probably barely say thank you to the sales assistant or the waiter or waitress that served you in the restaurant. So I would also say that just really go back to, is it really that bad? Or has maybe the receptionist or practice manager had a bad experience with one patient? What about the other 25 that got seen that made no noise and everything got done and you offloaded those out to the pharmacy? But you, you're fixating on that one patient that had to come back maybe because they, they couldn't afford to buy their medication. They were a bit annoyed that you sent them there in the first place, etc. So I'd say just take that step back, take a deep breath and just go, right, how are we going to work on this together and try again? And how are we going to keep going till it works? Because it does work. North East London is an example of that. Do you have the workforce? Do you mean community pharmacy? Yeah. Yeah. So look, workforce is is an issue at the moment, and it but it's an issue across the NHS. It is. It is difficult because so legally you have to have a community pharmacist. You have to have a pharmacist in the pharmacy for it to open that day. Yeah. So London, obviously, it is a bit different. We've got, you know, uh, probably a higher number of pharmacists that live in the London area. So, you know, we don't have as many, I guess, issues getting pharmacists as, as other areas do, but we still do struggle. And I suppose... I'm just going to be really honest that what hasn't helped maybe is there's all the AAR funding that's happened. So you get a lot of pharmacists who qualify. When I qualified, you could work in community, you could work in hospital or a couple of people went into industry. Now there's a whole cohort of pharmacists working in GP practices, which wasn't a thing when I qualified. So it is tricky. It's not easy. But what we then help at the LPC, we help pharmacists kind of, I guess, learn how to manage their time and to think about, you know, it's not like millions of people are walking in. We've got, if I look at North East London, we've got 315 pharmacies and about 250 surgeries. So even if they do like three referrals a day, the pharmacist still won't get that many. And those patients probably could have walked in anyway. At least this way, you know, via IIF, the surgery until now was getting paid for it and, and we're getting paid for the consultation as well. I think it's about prioritizing your workload on what, I guess, pays well and has the best patient outcome, because that will lead to you being able to increase your workforce. So it's kind of trying to sometimes see the bigger picture. But I'm not going to lie, workforce is an issue at the moment. And there's a massive campaign by our national body around Save Our Pharmacies, because as you may know, one of the larger multiples is actually pretty much closing. And that's that's quite a concern and worry. Well, I phoned you. I was saying things change right but at the time of recording 
there was an announcement to say that Lloyd's were coming out of Sainsbury's okay. and that's my local pharmacy. So I phoned you, I'm sending you a voice message. Like, yeah. what, what's happening? <laughs> like, I know, obviously I know I can go to another pharmacy, but it's a fantastic service. And I think I'm a high user because my children have got long-term conditions. I'm still taking some medications which I probably shouldn't be taking, but they're always so nice in there. And I did think, you know, there will be some people that, rely on that service yeah which could have a knock on you know a negative effect not just well two general practices and that patient's outcomes they may not go to the pharmacy they may not pick up their medication they may leave it too long yeah. do you know what I mean because they don't have that convenience factor and just trying to understand that and also wanted to understand without being um too opportunistic but where is the opportunity here is there an opportunity what's your view is there an opportunity yeah, so I think if we start, why it is a real worry that Lloyds are pulling out of, of Sainsbury's and we're seeing this with a lot more pharmacies as, are not viable. Part of it is to do with the national contract no longer being fit for purpose post-COVID. So the funding that we get from the government where 90% of a, of a pharmacy's work is government work, NHS prescriptions, etc. You know, the funding is just not viable any longer. So we are really concerned about what this means, not only for for Lloyd's pulling out of Sainsbury's, but for other pharmacies that we're seeing close. We've had more closures over the last couple of years than we have previously. So that is a real concern. I suppose that also, like you said, especially in rural areas, it really does put pressure on patients that suddenly had a pharmacy within, you know, I think we say 89% of patients have a pharmacy within 20 minutes. That may now be, you know, a bigger number or take a bit longer to get to a pharmacy. I suppose from the opportunity point of view, I suppose the surrounding pharmacies will obviously be able to take on that workload in in some instances. But I suppose the difficulty is that they're not going to be able to do that with the current staffing levels that they have. They're going to have to then employ people. So there may be opportunities for the people that currently work in the pharmacy that's closing to move out to neighbouring pharmacies. And that's the advice I'd give to them first. Go and ask your neighbouring pharmacies if they've got any vacancies, because they will, because they're going to be getting the extra work. And as we said, there is a bit of a workforce issue. So there are definitely jobs out there. I think the other opportunity that's huge for community pharmacy is that we are now, or HEE are funding a number of places for independent prescriber training. And from 2026, everyone who qualifies will be an independent prescriber. So what we're trying to do is really support the current workforce of pharmacists becoming independent prescribers so that they can do some of the clinics that might be run in a surgery could potentially be run in pharmacy and where we're actually going through at the moment we're going to be doing an IP independent prescriber pathfinding service where we're going to pilot lots of different independent prescribing to see what works really well and fits in with the NHS we're doing that with NHS England so that's an opportunity for any pharmacist out there to to train up to become an independent prescriber and not only look at how they can use that skill for the NHS, but can they also use that skill for some some areas where people want to pay privately? An example would be, say, travel vaccines. If you're traveling on holiday, you, you can't always get travel vaccines on the NHS, but you can go to a pharmacy and get them. And that's so much more convenient than having to go into London, into one clinic. Yeah, I've been there yeah. years ago. Yeah, Get yellow fever. Yeah. yeah. And now you can go to your pharmacy near you. So I think there is always opportunity. We just really want ICBs and mainly the government to really recognise that, you know, whilst we can do a lot, we do need to be funded appropriately for everything we do. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you proudly in partnership with 10,000 donors and their Gob for Good campaign. Gob for Good is all about getting as many people as possible to join the Stem Cell Registry. 
Only 3% of the UK are registered to be stem cell donors and only 0.4% of the global population. If you or a loved one have the devastating news that you have been diagnosed with a blood cancer, the chances of you finding your blood stem cell match is significantly reduced if you have a minority ethnic heritage. It is really, really simple. All you need to do is click into the show notes or visit the God for Good website at godforgood.com and get yourself signed up to the registry. You could one day receive that life-saving call or one day you may need that life-saving call. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. As a chief exec, how much of your time is looking at the policy, understanding the contract, understanding, you know, all the paperwork. So you feel so clear, as clear as you can be with the information that you've got to be able to communicate that to your organizations, to people like me, you know, like that, all that just rolled off your tongue. Yeah. And it's really weird because I am the worst person for sitting down. So I love reading, right? But I love reading fiction and novels and books. Mm. But whenever a new service specs come down, I do like my heart sinks a bit because I'm like, I've got to read this 26 page (laughs) document. I've got to understand it. And I have to read it a few times. So, you know, I do have to read things a few times. I have to sometimes speak to other colleagues in other LPCs. We have a a national body that often do some brilliant one pages with FAQs, etc. So I tend to, if I need something quickly, I can, I tend to go on their website and have a look and it's brilliant because it's all on there. That is the part of the job that I actually enjoy the least. You know, I, I really find it hard to focus on a task for, you know, sometimes you need to spend an hour, don't you, sitting down and reading and yeah. suddenly find a million other things that need to, you know, <laughs> that email that came in three minutes ago needs to be answered right now, as opposed to the bit of reading I plan to do. But yeah, so a fair proportion of my time is spent reading, doing things. But also, I think when you love your job and you're passionate about your job, you, you know the kind of t- key topics and points you ever want to get across when you're talking to anyone about pharmacy. So I, I'm probably really boring if I ever go out to dinner with my friends. They <laughs> ask me about my work. And they've never said that. And I still get invites. So I can't be that bad. But I actually do love talking about work. And I think that helps me kind of just the more I talk about it, like you said, it rolls off your tongue. because it's, it's part of what I do. It's my DNA. What's the best thing you love about your job? The best thing I love about my job is helping pharmacy owners and contractors be the best that they can be so that I know that if they're doing really well, I know that that's providing a great service for the local community. So I I thrive on really helping them be the best that they can be because I know that that will go down to the ground, basically. How do you know if you are doing a job I suppose, yeah, in, in my role, it's really weird because you have to have a little bit of faith in yourself. You have to, you, you, you kind of know, I suppose, because people come and ask you for advice or other, other areas will go, how are you doing this? Or, and sometimes it's results-based, you know, so when you get the figures through and you're like, yeah, I've done really well on this, this <laughs> we're, you know, we're hitting the figures. So there is a bit of that, but actually p- people don't really tell you. It's kind of like you said there, like it's when you leave that people really say oh my god you're leaving I can't believe you're leaving that's when people suddenly tell you how amazing you are or when you've left you get people talking to you when you bump into them going we really miss you and you know they don't always tell you that at the time do they so you have to have in certain roles especially maybe being a CEO and you know you run your own business as well you've got to have a lot of self-confidence you've got to know that you're doing a good job because people are still asking you to do more or people are asking you to be part of a working group because they must value your opinion otherwise they won't ask you to be part of that group. So I guess that's that's just how I know. 
What was the last thing you said no to work-wise? I probably haven't for work. And, <laughs> and that is something I was going to, okay, so this year on a personal level, I did want to take a step back. So not, not that I'm not committed. I love my job. I love what I do, but I really miss I used to travel loads pre-COVID and I miss sort of traveling and I don't spend enough time relaxing and just sort of doing nothing. I'm always on the go, pretty much like you, not seeing like how much you do. And I have sort of taken that step back now to go, actually, I do want to do some more traveling this year. I want to do some things for myself that aren't either working for the voluntary sector or for my job. I haven't said no to anything yet because everything I get asked to do, I always just think, Oh, I know that's going to take time, but that's such a great opportunity. I always see everything as a great opportunity. So I very rarely say no. I suppose what I have done is I've employed a pharmacy services manager, which is fantastic. So there are obviously, you know, some meetings I can't go to. And before I think I would have tried to go to one meeting for part of it and then log off and attend the other meeting. Now I'm a bit more pragmatic. Look, sure, but you can't be in three places at once. You wouldn't physically be if yeah. you're in real life. You don't need to do that virtually. It's okay to delegate, send somebody else. And we have a great working relationship that I trust that when he goes to meetings, we have a quick catch up beforehand. I think that's really important, having a team around you yeah. that you know you can trust to portray your views because you've kind of, you've said to them what the expectation is and that can also feed back to you so you, you feel like you're not missing anything because I like to know everything that's going on in the background. So before we start to press record, I was like, and it, don't, it sort of sounds like patronising, but when you said that you were leaving when we were working on the project together, I was just so... I think what came through is that you didn't, you were a hundred percent invested and it's an understandable and it's easy, but given your position, you would think anybody that's a CEO, you know, like you're not just going to be like, I'm leaving. I'm, you know, I'm not just going to kick back now. You're probably busier than ever, but yeah. you were just so committed and you were like, yeah, I'm a complete finisher. But there yeah. are some people that just, you know, like they've clocked off and I get it. I get both sides of the coin, but you were like, no, I say I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to finish it. But sometimes in your job now as a CEO, it's not a project that you can finish or it has a really long end date. How do you stay motivated? I guess learning about myself, I am a complete finisher. And it was the same when I used to work for the multiple. I used to, you know, be like, oh, I'm being promoted to a, a bigger branch. And I'd be like, but I haven't finished everything I wanted to do in this branch. I wanted to train that person. I wanted that person to be my success. I wanted this. I wanted that. And haven't. And it was one of my leaders once said to me, like, you know, you're never going to be able to finish everything. What you need to do is, is make sure that you always leave a place better than how you found it. And I've really sort of like taken that now and kind of gone, yeah, so as long as everything I do is better than when I started, then I've brought something to a certain level. And I guess good leadership is about supporting your team to carry that journey on when you're not there with your successor so that, you know, you bring something to 80% and then your successor comes in, they've got the foundation, they've got the layout, and then they can take it to the full 100%. And, you know, they can do that with the team because of the way that you've spread that workload, you delegated and you've involved and engaged everybody. However, I am very committed to everything I do. If I say I'm going to do something, I, I will do it and I want to do it properly. So if I know I'm leaving a role until the last day, I, I try not to start focusing on the new role. It's always hard because that person leaving, sending you bits and pieces. Yeah. Uh, but I'm like, right, I'll do that in my own time. And during work time, I'm, I'm committed to the person that's paying, paying my salary at the end of the day. What is the thorn in your side at the moment regarding work? What is the issue that you feel like is taking forever to resolve? 
I think it's pace. And, you know, when because like, with the local pharmaceutical committee, you work alongside the NHS, you're not you're not in it, you're working alongside. So we can make things happen really quickly because there's me and a couple of team members and a committee. So I literally could send an email to the committee. Can we do this? You know, to ask them to get back to me by a certain time they do. And then I can implement it and do it. If I want to tomorrow change over to an IT system, as long as I've got the authorization very quickly, I could do that the next day as long as they, they had capacity. What I find when in this role is that we've been talking about a project that we started talking about probably in June and July, and it's only just going to potentially the finance board at the beginning of April to get approval. By the time we roll it out, it will probably be June and July. So it's taken a year to get something going. And in all honesty, whereas before I would have invested time and energy and kept myself motivated, I no longer do that. I've learned that you can't physically do that because you'll burn out. So what you almost need to do is put it on the back burner and remember to come back to it every month or so and just kind of go any updates on this. But you've got to, it's not within my control. It's not within my gift. So I've got to say, can't do anything else at this stage. Let me wait until, you know, they're, they're going through their journey and just little reminders here and there. And it's not the fault of anybody. It is just the, the sort of governance processes that they need to follow. And I get that. But I still go back to, if we were still in the height of the pandemic, we'd have been able to do that within a week. Maybe not a week, a month, but, you know, we would have been so much quicker. And I think we've just slipped back into our old ways of governance and having to really, we have to always cross the T's and dot the I's. We've got to keep patients safe. But when it's something really simple, it can be quite frustrating because I see it really simply. I'm like, just do this, do this. And, you know, we'll save you lots of money. It'll be great. Let's just do it. But everyone's got to go and talk to this person and that person. So, yeah, I tend to now put things on the back burner. I motivate myself by really putting energy and focus into the things that are driving results and helping people now. What is the thing that you are most excited about at the moment? I'm really excited about some of the national services. So it is the GP, CPCS and the hypertension and ambulatory blood pressure monitor um, service that we've got at the moment, the ABPM service. I think that, you know, we have a real opportunity to help patients and to help the NHS by doing these services. And, you know, my ICB has been really, we've got a task and finish group and everyone on there is really motivated and really excited and is making things happen. So the ICB has been great by, you know, paying for the IT system, which makes things easier. And we're doing really well with them. So that's the kind of stuff I'm really excited about because I can see immediately I pull off a report, say, every every Monday morning, so I can see the difference it's made in the previous week for patients. When you say the ICB, do you have a seat on the ICB? No, I don't have a seat on the ICB. And that's a bit of a, you know, there's always been a bone of contention, I guess, from community pharmacy to say that, you know, we should have a seat on there. And whilst I do believe that we should, and I hope that one day things will change and, and that we will have a seat on there, I think that there are other ways of influencing and getting your point across and talking to the right people. You don't necessarily need to always have a seat at the table to show and demonstrate what you can do. What we do have in our ICB is, is a fantastic chief pharmacist who the background is hospital trust. They've taken a lot of time and, and spent a lot of time trying to get to know about community pharmacy and the value that we can add. And they've re and what I, I really admire about that leadership is that they've, they've come out and gone, right, okay, tell me what you can do. Tell me a bit about yourself. And actually, same with the chief medical officer. So we went out with our chief medical officer for the day. And it was brilliant because he was just so invested around what can community pharmacy do. And we showed him what we could do. We showcased a few different pharmacies and it was brilliant. And he still mentions it every so often now on social media, but also other people have told me he mentions it at meetings he goes to. 
to say, look, have we thought about our community pharmacy colleagues? So, you know, you can have your voice heard via other people that are advocates of you by not having a seat, but I would also like a seat. They can keep it warm for me, right? <laughs> How do you prepare for a really important meeting? Again, I'm not very good at this because I find it really hard sometimes to just sit and concentrate on things. And I'm so natural in my way. I just say it like it is. I'm not, I'm not very, I don't know, I don't know if censoring is the right word, but I just think it's really important to just be yourself and say things like they are. So the main preparation I do is just obviously look at the agenda, see what if I've got a slot on there, what I need to talk about, make sure that I know that topic inside out. So I do want to know that. But then I'm also like, actually... Again, experience teaches you. It's okay to say, I don't know. Can we put that as a next step and I'll get back to you and I'll send you the information? Because there's nothing worse than blagging it or bluffing it and then being asked more questions. And before you know it, you've got yourself into this big hole and you've given someone the wrong information. So I'm I'm quite happy to just say, actually, I don't know the answer to that question. But yeah, generally just reading and- You just rock up. Whereas I'm the opposite. Are you? I have to exercise, meditate. I would not perform well. So we've got like a board meeting coming up. I'm going, I mean, I don't have to. I'm like going down the day before. I want to make sure I'm on it. And I think the times where I have not been on it, it's it's not been great. So no, I, I don't have the confidence or the experience to just be like, some meetings, yes, but no. <laughs> oh, so mine's now. As long as I've had my morning cup of tea, that's literally all I need to get going in the day. And that's it. And I'm good for the day. Yeah, like you're an early. I'm bird. an early bird. Yeah, yeah. I- I'm not. I'm like you know, it stresses me out if I have to be somewhere for a meeting because I don't sleep properly the night before because I-, I keep getting up at four o'clock. I've still got four hours left to sleep. I've got three <laughs> hours, two hours, etc. So I don't. I definitely don't like being late. I'll always arrive early for something. Mm. And there are situations like I did some stuff at the pharmacy show. I'd go down the night before just to make sure that I wasn't you know competing with traffic and that in the morning but generally as long as I've had my cup of tea I'm good to go I need to learn I would save myself a lot of time yeah Yeah. and energy (laughs) like it's great that you do all of that it must be really good for your well-being I think the only thing I would just say that you know like if I've got to travel for a meeting so I don't I don't attend every single meeting a day early it's just like hi it's just uh, you know like this just certain and I just think you know what I just want to make sure I've dotted the I's and crossing the t's but yeah. I think this conversation is helpful it's we're all different and I think you have to do what gives you the confidence and for some people I'm like I'm slowly getting addicted to coffee but I think what you just said there was really important like you've got to do what's right for you because you yeah. do I, I spend a lot of time this whole early morning thing it's bugged me my whole sort of career that you know if I got up at five o'clock at the morning would I be more amazing than I already am and then I'd be like no, <laughs> no I'd be you'd be more tired and grumpy yeah it's easy to look at people from the outside and I yeah. think people think I get up at five o'clock in the morning every single day and I'm on it every single day I'm not <laughs> like, yeah. I really I'd yeah. get tired but you know what you do? You read leadership books and you see, obviously, social media is like the worst as well. You see all these things. And I think for so many years early on in my career, I'd be reading this leadership book and try and implement something from it. And then I just thought that like, it's so much easier to be yourself because that's who you are, right? Yeah. And, and it's so much easier to do that. So just, and, and, and with the early morning, like we said, just go with your body clock. Whatever works yeah. for you is what works for you. I, I can stay up late working away if I need to. 
And that works really well for me, but I'm not good with early mornings. And, you know, I'll be honest, I'm 46 now and I've been like working for, you know, say 23, 24 years. And I'm like, why am I trying to change something now that's worked for me for 24 <laughs> years? I'm pretty successful. I'm doing yeah. all right. <laughs> no point trying to change it now. So I don't anymore. As always, it's been so good talking with you, Shilpa. Thank you so much for your time and I'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much, Tara. so much for joining us if you like what you hear I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review I know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care on Instagram and on LinkedIn just look for Tara Humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do you get to hear more insights more confessions some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week so click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.